From the turf industry point of view, I think we are a bit obsessive compulsive about cleaning up weeds. We don't like weeds. We don't like imperfection. And I think the closer you get to imperfection, the more the imperfections stand out. From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Russ. You heard a clip from our guest today, John Naylin, turfgrass agronomist at Sport Eng in Melbourne, Australia, talking about managing turfgrass surfaces in Australia. I'll talk later in the show with my old pal Jim Copenhaver of Palooza Golf about the economics of post-pandemic golf. But before we get started with today's episode, let me tell you about Dryject specialized turf injection, aeration, and soil modification services. Dryject is a global leader in injection technology, featuring patented vacuum technology that simultaneously aerates and fills holes to the surface with high volumes of sand or amendments. I've personally seen the value of this practice, and now with the ability to inject non-dried sand and at several depths, it offers even more advantages. Contact your local Dryject services representative or visit dryject.com. I'm very excited to have you here, John. Thanks for taking the time. Listen, when I look at the history of Australia, I don't know if you have such a thing in Australia. Mount Rushmore, we say, oh, who's on the Mount Rushmore? Where they chisel the face in. And, you know, I think of Aldis, David Aldis, Peter McNaugh, and you. You know, your your face <laughs> put a chiseled on there for Australia. And, you know, mostly because I've read your work over the years. As a student of annual bluegrass to start, right, you published a paper with Terry Woodcock years ago in 1987, where you started yes. to study annual bluegrass. And I guess, like me, you've been through 30 some odd years, 35 years of really trying to understand annual bluegrass. Mm. You've also got to travel a little bit. Yes. Where are we at with annual bluegrass, poannua, meadowgrass, whatever you want to call it, as a species of playing surface? particularly for golf down in Australia, where do you guys view annual bluegrass depending on where you're at in Australia? Mm. It's been a really interesting 30 plus years with uh, power annual or annual bluegrass. Um, I noticed in your email, you mentioned Dr. Mary Lush, who I worked with uh, for a few years at what used to be the Turf Research Institute. And, And Mary was probably one of the early pioneers of understanding the dynamics of annual bluegrass and I suppose the the changes in the structure of the plant and the seed bank and all those sort of things. And I often refer back to that information. Where are we at now? Well, certainly in the southern part of Australia, the obsession is to keep annual bluegrass out of Bermuda grass fair. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of those things we've gone down that purity of playing surface route Mm -hmm. and it's becoming more and more difficult. So particularly with herbicide resistance becoming more of an issue, Mm -hmm. going way back when I first started, you could put out atrazine and you could clean everything up. But very quickly, there was resistance developing. We then had propizamide, mm-hmm. same problems there. We had the sulfonyl ureas that come along and everybody got really excited about them. And I don't think I've ever seen a herbicide resistance develop as quickly as it did to the sulfonyl ureas. So, so John, let, let me interrupt you because the sulfonyl ureas, that, that's where I couldn't take it anymore. ALS inhibition, I think you could bring the container near the plant and it starts to become resistant without actually even spraying it on it. So what do you make of the sort of persistence, what we call, I don't want to call it insanity, but we're going through one thing <laughs> after another. And of course, we're doing it in the States now too. And of course, our emphasis in a lot of ways is glyphosate resistance, where we're mm. seeing the biggest problems. Weed resistance is well known as a major obstacle in agriculture in Australia, John. what What is it about yes. you guys? I know Steve Powell. I almost worked with him in Adelaide years ago. What is it with why weeds develop resistance so rapidly to the chemistries you guys wind up using? That's a, that's a really good point. I think from the turf industry point of view, I think we are a bit obsessive compulsive about cleaning up weeds. We don't like weeds. We don't like imperfection. Right. And I think the closer you get to imperfection, the more the imperfections stand out. Mm-hmm. I remember one golf course superintendent when one of the first off ureas came out, he said to me, he said, I've got this really bad problem. He said, I've got about a thousand herbicide resistant powers on my fairway. He said that started off as six plants that didn't get controlled with my very first application. 
He said, I wish I had have gone out there and just chipped those weeds out. And it's a discussion that we've had that, and some superintendents actually do it. They will actually go on rogue fairways mm. to get rid of those plants they don't kill with a herbicide. Mm. Uh, there's obviously cost involved with that. What about phrase mowing? I, I, I remember when I visited last time, some people had heard of it. It's gotten a mm. lot of popularity here in the desert Southwest, uh, arid climates yes. like you guys have in some areas where, you know, you throw a lot of sand all the time. And this is a way to keep the fairways firm, but it also also is a way to remove the weed seed bank, which brings us back yeah. to Mary Lush's, you know, and the work yes. you did years and years ago. Yeah. I didn't know you worked with Mary, but I, when I taught the annual bluegrass seminar for the GCSA back in the 90s, that was all we had. Carl Dannyberger had done a little bit, but Mary Lush was, and Vic Youngner with Vic Gibo in yep. California, they had done some. But honestly, now we have a young group of scientists working on it, basically going back and, and revisiting some of the questions about yeah. life cycle, yes. which, you know, yeah. you want to say, what the hell took us all so long uh, yeah, to get exactly. back to studying it? But now we have methazole. Mm. Do you think the combination of maybe some practices like phrase mowing and some chemistry like methazolin, uh, that we might approach this a little bit differently, not yeah. just in your country, but in my country yeah. uh, as well? Certainly one of my obsessions probably over the last uh, six years or so is actually studying the seed bank. Myself and a colleague, David Nixon, uh, we did some extensive uh, pre-emergent trials. And as part of that study, we took core samples, we split the cores up into different layers, and then we actually just germinated the seeds mm -hmm. just to see what yeah, the numbers were yeah, like. Yeah. And it was extraordinary, the numbers, you know, we were getting numbers up to sort of 12,000, 15,000 seedlings per square metre. Mm -hmm. As a follow-on to that, one of the golf courses on the uh, Mornington Peninsula, they did some phrase mowing trials. Mm -hmm. I actually collected some of the debris that they took off mm -hmm. and looked at the, again, the seed bank. You know, if you can strip off that top inch or 25 millimetres, you're going to take a lot of seed away. You're going to take a big population away. It was important to follow up with pre-emergence during the growing, you know, getting the, the Bermuda grass back. But the phrase mowing does have great potential. The problem was is just the sheer volume of material that's removed. I could not believe it. You better it. have a hole you need yeah. to fill because everybody complains the same thing, that that material mm. is problematic uh, to handle. But, yeah. but it also yeah. does change the physical properties, right? You remove a fair amount of organic matter while you're removing that mm. seed. But how yes. does the methazolin fit in now that it's legal now? It's registered yes. in Australia. Yeah. Uh, methazolin and it's an interesting one. We've uh, used it in trials uh, over two seasons. This was in fairway applications. This was on Bermuda grass. We probably didn't get a really good result with it. Wow. And I think on reflection and discussing it with the, the chemical company over here that have got the rights to it, I think we have some issues about trying to get the proper placement of the methiazolin mm. to kill the poa plants that we're trying to kill. Mm. If it goes sort of too far past the root zone, I don't think we get the uptake that's required. Mm. We also had problems with getting the required volume of water on as well. Mm. That was another issue that really popped up uh, trying to get enough water on up to maybe five millimetres, mm. particularly in a broad acre sense, it's uh, quite difficult to get that quantity of water on. Yeah. And we're probably finding that across all our herbicide applications, including pre-emergences, the volume of water that's going on sort of post-application. So there's numbers of things we need to tinker with. Yeah. <laughs> But because everybody's stretched for time and are rushing, right. we're probably taking a few shortcuts. But I think methiazolin's got a place. I would think that it's got to be a chemical that you use strategically mm -hmm. in hard-to-kill areas. Mm -hmm. I would probably give it one program of use. And if it's not going to clean up resistant or difficult-to-kill plants, mm -hmm. I'd be phrase-mowing and stripping those areas. And that's what we've discussed a lot is whether phrase mowing is something you can do in strategic areas, but understanding it does actually change the dynamics of the fairway presentation as well. Yeah. On a golf course that was recently renovated, uh, sections of fairways were phrase mowed or turf cut. The turf regeneration was brilliant, but it made the rest of the fairway look 
quite poor yeah. and a little bit sad <laughs> and less thrifty. <laughs> That's right. It, it definitely improves the quality of it. But what about methazolin on your bentgrass surfaces? I mean, you have those beautiful mm. bentgrass surfaces in most places. Yes. Yeah. Has it got a place there? It absolutely has a place there, and we've seen some excellent results with it. But again, it's interesting, and, and all credit to Campbell Chemicals that are selling the methiazolin here in Australia. They've done a lot of work. We've done trial work. A lot of superintendents have done trial work. They've collected a lot of information, and we've probably found a few little tricky things. Um, one of the things is with um, some of the bent grasses that uh, colonise or segregate quite badly, uh, you will get types that will react quite poorly to the methiazolin. Hmm particularly going into the cooler months of the year. Mm. So we've seen some mid to lateish autumn applications and it's sort of picked out specific sort of isolates mm -hmm. or biotypes and it's actually damaged them quite severely. Well, listen, I, I think what's uh, interesting about what I've said to you here is how I've noticed as a weed scientist by training, I've noticed Australia has a lot of weed issues <laughs> where they it become does. resistant. And it, a lot of it has to mm. do with, you really have a wonderful growing season. You don't mm. really have much mm. winter uh, throughout the entire country. The only thing that Great. holds growth at bay is water. You get into arid areas yes. where you can't yeah. supply the water. That's the only thing that stops the vegetation from growing everywhere. So it is, mm. I mean, as you go north, right, it gets more tropical and certainly yes. more south. Uh, you can get into what I would, Fred Yelverton mm. would tell me, like North Carolina-ish kinds mm. of climates, maybe not as harsh a winter as Carolinas can get. But that mm. also raises issues with the wonderful soils that you have. And I can't mm. not have a conversation with you, John, talking about maybe the flooding that's occurred throughout the country with some yes. crazy weather. Yep. But I want to make sure mm. we get to the sandbelt conversation because I'm absolutely mm. enamored with our ability to have great golf courses on deep sand. But let's start with the weather. You guys have had some crazy weather. My daughter was there last year living right before the pandemic and the fires were, were an issue. Yes. And uh, now you got flooding. Darren Wilson tells me he swims with the sharks uh, out west. Mm. So you guys have quite a climate going on there these days. How do you reconcile all this, John? You've been at it a long time like me. What do you make yeah. of this climate that we're going through these days? I think there's no doubt it's due to what we would broadly call climate change. We're definitely in a changing climate. There's no doubt about that. Probably for the last 10 years, we've found our springs, interestingly, have seemed to have been later and cooler with moderate rainfall events. But then as soon as that switch is turned off, say, around December, January, that's where we get into these really hot, dry conditions, you know, temperatures up in the, I suppose, close to the 100 degrees Fahrenheit or high 40 degrees Celsius. So the water just stops immediately. We have a lot of need for good irrigation, good irrigation systems and reasonable water quality. This year has been one right out of the box. Um, it's been wet all the way through from spring right through the summer. We haven't had anywhere near the high temperatures. But what we are getting are these really high, intense rainfall bursts as well. Mm. Um, I mean, what's happened up in Sydney and um, sort of southeast Queensland over the last month is just unprecedented. <sighs> you know, they're getting nearly an annual rainfall in a few days, yeah. in a few weeks. Uh, so the flooding's been extensive. Uh, one of the turf farms that I visited early last year that had been flooded. Uh, they've been flooded again this year and the water's probably come up an extra, I'm just sort of trying to do a little mental picture, maybe another four or five metres. <laughs> um, so where their equipment and sheds were protected last time, they've gone underwater this time. So we don't believe that there's, there's going to be a terrible turf shortage here over the next six to 12 months. Some of these growers are also growing specialised ready-to-play turf as well that is being prepared to go into some of the stadiums. One stadium in particular has a what we call a, an agricultural show mm -hmm. where they do horse jumping and mm -hmm. cows and all that sort of thing. Uh, that's usually resurfaced just before they return back to Australian rules football. 
So my understanding is a lot of that turf has been damaged. So it's going to be a real challenge. Yeah, a real challenge. And, uh, it's so fascinating. I could listen to you wax on about this forever because I know the whole other part of your life outside of golf. I mean, you're working, well, you got the footy, you got turf grass racing, you've done horse track stuff. You've played around right. with the cricket uh, pitch curators. And of course they play rugby a fair amount down there. Yes, uh, yeah. y- You've worked on all these systems, but really, you know, you've done some innovating work, even in bowling work where you've done reinforced fibers and of course, right. engineered soils are everything we talk about. But one of the right. things I, I really appreciated when I got there was that I think everybody has embraced the USGA method for growing Mm -hmm. uh, sand-based putting greens and thinking about it for sports fields. But I also saw that not everybody agreed it was always the best way to do it. So Mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about how you guys have discriminated over the years between whether it makes sense to do it in that method or whether you can make an adaptation? That's uh, that's probably another one of my obsessions other than Poirano. It's about uh, profile construction. I know. (laughs) It's interesting. I mean, back in the late 80s, early 90s, a lot of the traditional push-up greens just couldn't tolerate the winters and the the relatively high traffic. So the move was to to build them to sand profiles or what we would call perch water table profiles using the USGA-type method. Uh, We didn't always get it right. We probably neglected the area of moisture retention in those root zone mixes. Uh, The sands that we deal with here, I'm quite convinced are are different in that they're more rounded. Uh, So stability is an issue with them. So the USGA allows quite a coarse fraction to sit in that sand selection. Mm. Um, If we go in that direction, we end up with really unstable surfaces. Mm. Um, Even if we load it up with uh, peat moss or cocoa fibre, we just can't get the firmness. And some work I did several years ago showed that with a, a true USGA sand in our situation, we needed to have it at field capacity in order to get maximum firmness. Mm. Now, the trouble is the sand would only retain that moisture at field capacity for probably 24 hours at best before it drains away and then the surface becomes softer. Australian golf is really based around hard fast surfaces and that's where the Melbourne sand belt's always been so popular because of the finer sand types used in those original push-up greens. Uh, So what people have started to do is to question the true USGA profile but also starting to search for some finer sands and uh, on a couple of golf course projects I've been involved with we've been quite fortunate we've been able to pick a sand that still has reasonably good drainage capabilities good moisture retention but as it slowly dries out it becomes really quite firm mm. which is what the superintendents and golfers are typically looking for but it's a fine balance the the good thing about the usga uh, guidelines is that it's a very good recipe that has a very much i won't say guaranteed outcome but a very predictable outcome with what we're trying to do now is sort of pushing the limits a little bit and if we push the limits a little too far one way uh, we're going to have a, an outcome that's not going to be so good so we have to curb the enthusiasm of superintendents in particular from not wanting to go too fine and then lose some of those good capabilities of good drainage good aeration so you can develop good root systems right. etc and so john when you say you can't get or you don't want the coarse particles in there you don't want them to be a bigger component is it because they're rounded as a rule there and therefore then they don't really set up because we can get coarse particles in our angular sands that are a little more angular here and they set up pretty nice and they also to a certain extent reduce the risk of fine particles which make for fine pores which roots fill really quickly and Mm. while it will get firm you better have a really good handle on your growth because uh, excessive growth uh, in those fine systems, my sense, mm. can they can clog up and get soft pretty quick at the top. Mm. Is, what's your experience mm. there, John? Yeah, well, certainly because of the rounded particles, they just don't get the interpacking that you need mm. to, to get a good sort of firm, stable surface. So, Because most of our sands are dune sands, mm-hmm. are windblown dune sands, quite ancient dune sands so the particles are very rounded Uh, so we're wanting a fair proportion of our particles in that medium fraction and equivalent amounts either side just to get some interpacking we're probably finding that if we can get around about three to four percent in that silt plus clay component Mm -hmm. 
that's enough to help sort of lock things together. We're going to get a, a pretty firm surface, but we're going to still retain our drainage rate as well. Okay. And so yeah. it leads us to really my obsession, which is uh, with the golf courses uh, in the sand belt, which stretches oh. down from Melbourne some would say all the way down to the Mornington Peninsula. Others define yes, it more yes. narrowly based on, I, you know, I was mm. reading about it in preparation for this. And actually there's much of that peninsula that's stuffed with clay. Many of mm. the peninsula, much yeah. of the peninsula is clay, except for these outwashed areas where, where the sand yes. persisted. And they said in some cases, uh, you know, close to 80 meters deep. I mean, to me, that's just the finest golf you can get because with that mm. depth of fine sand, uh, you have the ability just, you can, my feet used to ache when I would walk around with Richard uh, on the putting mm. surfaces at the Royal Melbourne. So talk about what they're able to do. And maybe has anybody tried to recreate that idea where they can find an appropriate sand that might be similar in properties and go deeper? Mm. The area where Royal Melbourne, Victoria Golf Club, Metropolitan, Kingston Heath, what people would really say is the true sand belt of Melbourne. Yeah. We've got very natural sands, fine sands, loamy sands. Royal Melbourne is probably the best piece of land along with Kingston Heath. Yeah. You know, it's sort of nice undulations, good deep sand profiles. Many, many years ago uh, when I was doing some work for a Sydney golf club that wanted the same sort of greens as Royal Melbourne, um, the superintendent allowed me to dig some nice deep holes through and around these greens. <laughs> and um, I only went as far as sort of three to four metres in depth. And it was sand, but it was all different sort of sands. You know, there was no uniformity. And you look at that and go, well, that's a really interesting profile. But I've always believed it's the depth of the sand, even though the sands are quite fine, they would never pass a USGA sieve test. It's the depth and also it's the brilliance of the golf course architects that shaped greens with a good emphasis on surface runoff. So if you do get heavy rainfall events, the water sheds off. Uh, golf course architects, I think, have fallen into a bit of a trap with USGA-style profiles that they actually build in depressions and hollows in the green, in the middle of the green, and then wonder why there's black layer and all sorts of things going crazy. So the native sands, and it's certainly the architecture that have combined to produce these great results. There's certainly areas on the Melbourne sand belt where um, they do have to put some subsoil drainage into fairways because the soils are duplex. Mm -hmm. So you might have a foot of a loamy sand soil that sits over clay, but, you know, Royal Melbourne, it's the perfect environment. Oh. When you get down the Mornington Peninsula, yeah, that's a whole different pure dunes there. Once you dig into those dunes, they just seem to go on forever. The sands are on the finer side, but again, the depth of the sands, they're finest, they lock together, and they do produce extraordinarily good surfaces. Yeah. We have to deal with pHs between sort of eight and a half and uh, nine, even higher, because uh, those sands are quite calcareous, so you'll actually find free lime in them. So it creates a few interesting little challenges around nutrition, but uh, the supers down there yeah. have learned how to how to work with it. Well, and I know Doak just did a property. Uh, when I had visited once, John, I can't remember his name. He works on the island now. Oh, yeah, John Geary? Yeah, John Geary. He took me to St. Yeah. Andrews when I think yes. Doak was yes. redoing it or they were revitalizing it or something. And those yes. are those uh, sands you're talking about, really high pH sands. Correct. Yeah, that's right. Well, Tom Doak's actually, it's probably nearly two years ago now, finished redesigning and rebuilding one of the uh, the courses at the National Golf Club. Uh -huh. So the National has three courses and Doak has done a rerouting and and a rebuild there. So he got to, to work in those uh, beautiful sands. All right. Well, listen, I'm going to get you out of here. We're going to talk about this iconic figure uh, that I've been wanting to chat with about, and it breaks my heart. I didn't ever get to meet him, but Claude Crockford was really another one of those uh, legends that I read about, right? I, I, I have a copy of his book that I scanned 
And one of the things that fascinated me about Claude's approach was not only very common sense oriented and very site specific to what he knew was a unique piece of land. Mm. What do you make of the way they used to take the turf off, remove this layer of organic material, Mm. spread sand around again and put the turf back on? Mm. And is that a practice we ought to consider again instead of like trying to throw as much sand as we throw and top dress the mm. way we top dressed mm. is what did you do people still do that uh that claude suggested that he that he used to do at melbourne and and if they don't do you think we should well interestingly uh richard Forsyth at royal melbourne he just recently wrote an article for the uh the victorian superintendents association magazine uh-huh. on this exact method that they're re-employing ah re-employing yeah, so they're sort of bringing it back in as a way of uh, controlling organic matter accumulation. There's probably a couple of things is that it does work exceptionally well, and I think going back to Claude's time and also the grass type that Richard is working with, which is a combination of brown tops and... Yeah, the Sutton mix. The Sutton mix, that's it. Yep. They probably don't take as kindly to dusting and renovations as we would traditionally know it. Yes. So I think that methodology just works really well in that situation. Is it a, a practical means on other golf courses? Probably the short answer is probably yes. If you can keep the purity of your bent grass, there would be no reason why you couldn't or shouldn't do that. And it's been interesting working with a few superintendents that have Uh, They've got to, their greens have got to maybe 10, 12 years old, and they're starting to say, well, should we be taking the top off? And I go, well, why would we be taking the top off? Well, you know, it's 10, 12, 15 years old. So I've sort of started to try to say, well, look, let's look at thatch depth. Is that getting out of control? What's the moisture content in the upper layer of the profile like? Uh, What's the firmness of the surfaces? Trying to get guys to think a little bit more about, you know, taking some empirical measurements of those things. Probably the other one there is how much pyranua is in the brain because uh, the guys have been pretty adept at keeping them clean for at least a good 10 years. Um, the guys that are really obsessive about it with hand weeding and that, they can stretch that out a bit longer, but it becomes unliable. You just, even like a 5% population in a grain. You just can't do it with labour and without disrupting the surface. But what's happened is, of course, methiazolins come in. So that's going to certainly extend the life. But what we've tried to do with a number of situations is to put some parameters in place that should be measured maybe only twice a year, maybe once a year, Mm -hmm. and see what the changes are. What's the organic matter change? What's the thatch depth change? You know, can we keep the surfaces dry and firm? So you need to sort of put them in. And then maybe one of the options is stripping and putting the turf back on. Mm. Long-winded answer. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, but that's the right answer because it's not a question that you'd normally think about. Hey, let me take the grass off, Mm. take this organic Mm. layer out and put it down. And I think what I've always liked about coming over is you guys really have benchmarked and measured playability things like firmness for many more years than even we were doing here. And I would say that too about the island off the coast of Australia. The New Zealanders are big on this and STRI is also big on this. But we historically in our states have never been that big on it until recently. And I will tell you now, we as a country have gotten completely obsessed in golf with firmness. And I think it's something you guys have always had, Mm. particularly as you idealize the Sandbelt golf courses. But the other thing that I've appreciated about golf in Australia that's so different here is there really is a beautiful natural world and the way you guys present your golf courses. And again, I talk about Royal Melbourne, but there's many. Royal Adelaide Mm. is Mm. the same way. I would say they're absolutely spectacular, but they're not manicured to the same extent we do at a country club Mm. like Marion or Oakmont or something Mm. like that. There's a stylized way to the way you do golf that has to do with the environment. And I found a publication that you wrote many years ago about environmental stewardship on the golf courses. This was back in Mm. the nineties. You wrote this, John. So I know you're an environmental activist from way back (laughs) Uh, before I let you go. Where is Australia as a country and as a golf course industry in really Mm. seeing how uh, environmental stewardship and what superintendents have to do is is a pretty big part of the whole issue? Yeah, it's one that has actually just really been discussing with a, uh, a close superintendent friend of mine. It's interesting 
looking at just say golf at the moment, pre-pandemic golfing numbers were on a slow decline. When the pandemic came along, people, that was one of the few things they could do is play golf. So it's actually rejuvenated golf and a love of golf. People can't travel as much, so they're playing more golf. It's creating some wear and tear issues on golf courses, which is interesting. Then when we start to look at the whole sustainability picture, it's a bit of a complex one because the upper end of our golf courses are so well presented, uh, particularly around the playability aspects, smoothness of surfaces, firmness, etc. It does put a lot of pressure on that next rung down. And they're trying to keep up with the Joneses, as we would say. And that's probably creating a number of issues around resource use, particularly water. So a high-end golf club can buy as much water as it wants. Okay, we've got desalination plants. They're wanting to sell water. So you can buy the water. You can pay three, dollars $400,000 a year for water if you need to. That's the one I still can't quite get my head around. Where does that leave the next rung down? And what's acceptable as playing surfaces? in a sustainable manner. And I'm often critical of the golf associations, the administrators of the game. Quite often I think they're too focused on the game and not on the bigger picture. I've had many a conversation with the guys at the RNA about their programs and how they're trying to get them implemented into an Australian environment, and it's a hard sell. We had a beautiful research project in conjunction with the University of Melbourne Uh, They did a whole lot of studies on the biodynamics of a golf course. And even they were stunned with the biodiversity on a golf course. The golf people don't really want to know too much about that. (laughs) They don't care that there's micro bats and snakes and lizards and, and a million sort of insects. But are so crucial to maintaining a lot of that natural landscape that is so precious to our golf courses, particularly on the sand belt. That's exactly right. It, it is a conundrum where they're really not paying attention to. I mean, obviously the playing conditions and people go out there for the golf. I mean, and once the pandemic ends, we had the same experience here. Less to do. Everybody came out. We had the same pressure on the golf courses. Golfers don't care a lot about the natural environment per se. They're very focused on the game, but we're professional land managers and it's our job Mm. to manage these natural resources. And I've long argued it's a responsibility we take on as soon as we get that water in our hands or get that fertilizer in our hands or get that pesticide in our hands, that there's a responsibility. And I know that, you know, the funny thing is I find that Australians as a people really connect with the natural world Mm. on a regular basis. It's not like you're you know, we have a lot of Americans who are very disconnected from the natural world, and I'm sure you have those people too. But I, yeah. I met a fair amount of average people there that are very connected to the natural world. Mm. And even visiting the cities, the premium you put on green space in your cities. Absolutely. I think that is really a testament to how much mm. you guys may be tending to it, even though you may not be thinking about it. Yeah. Well, there's probably two interesting examples. Two golf clubs amalgamated in the Melbourne suburbs, and one of those golf courses is being turned into housing subdivision. Uh And that caused a massive outrage because of people's loss of amenity, the grass, the trees, and the other associated things. But there's also another council that's got a group of people that used a local public golf course as picnic grounds because there was a period during the pandemic where you could go out for an hour's exercise but you weren't allowed to play golf. Now there's this massive pressure on the council to turn that golf course into parkland. (laughs) (laughs) But I did actually hear the mayor of uh, the municipality interviewed yesterday and she was saying, well, that's all well and good, but we still have to maintain that space. We have to mow it. We have to look after the vegetation. So I think that's a really good story to turn around and say, hey, we are really good land managers, you know, and the amount of work that goes into the treescapes and maintaining the health and vibrancy of those out-of-play areas is quite extraordinary, and it's grown incredibly over sort of 20 or 30 years but out of necessity, but it's an important part of maintaining the green space that we have left. John, it is a joy. The time goes by so fast. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me. Uh, Just listening to you wax on about these things warms my heart. (laughs) Thanks very much for uh, taking the time to join me. And uh, I really appreciate it. I hope you have a wonderful winter as we head into summer. 
Yeah. No, thank you very much. It's been good fun, Frank. Always enjoyed the chats and uh, you guys hope your uh, summer is, is kind to you. Yes, me too. John, thanks a lot. And you take care and be safe over there. And okay. I hope I get over one more time before it's done for me. That'd be great. Good on you. Thanks, Frank. All the very best. John Nealon, longtime Australian agronomist, currently with SportEng. We'll be right back with Jim Copenhaver for a deep dive on the business of golf heading into a post-pandemic world. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. The Plant Food Company of Cranberry, New Jersey, founded in 1946 by Edward Platts, began formulated liquid fertilizer in 1981 for the golf industry. I became familiar with them in the late 1990s when our research at the Bethpage State Park was being initiated and they immediately wanted to support our efforts to reduce pesticide use. We found their products to be cost-effective solutions to the nutrient management needs we established in our research. Other universities, such as Rutgers in New Jersey, found plant food programs to be excellent solutions to anthracnose, performing equally to most fungicide programs. Don't take my word for it. Contact your local plant food rep and get more information. I had the chance to catch up with one of my two favorite golf economists, Jim Copenhaver of Palooza Golf. The second favorite, of course, is Stuart Lindsay of Edge Hill Consultant. Jim and I spoke about golf in a post-pandemic world and how to use data to understand and plan your golf operation in 2021. Welcome to the show, Jim. Looking forward to having a regular chat. And boy, is there a ton to talk about. I want to start with your wonderful state of the industry presentation with Stuart. I have to say, I'm not usually one for persisting in a webinar, especially one for 90 minutes. (laughs) Stuart's uh, somewhere in between the Sahara Desert and, you know, I don't know, a little bit greener pastures. Uh, but right. on the dry side of dry, <laughs> great information. Learned a lot about the products you guys offer. But of course, the story this year was the impact. And again, as my favorite quote said, the pandemic did what 15 years of Grow the Game initiatives couldn't do. So welcome to the show. I want to just give you a chance to talk about how it turned out last year across the board that started out really good in the good markets before the pandemic hit. Let's talk about how the season progressed. So thanks for having me, Frank. I always enjoy bantering with you as well as I know your audience, you know, takes this in and and this is kind of an unusual take for them. It's like they're heads down in turf most of the time. It's like Frank's going to like blow my mind here for 15 or 20 minutes. So yeah, as I think about kind of what happened last year, we were on this emotional roller coaster. So January, February, as you mentioned, I'm here in Chicago. So nothing happens in January and February here, but the markets that were open, the counter seasonal markets were riding, you know, a pretty good uh, uptick in rounds, eight to 10%. Golf playable hours were up four or 5%. So that was saying even more encouragingly, we were getting this nice uptick in Jan Feb. It wasn't all due to weather. So there's increased demand. And then I still remember the day, it was March 15th, when Illinois said, you're done. You stay at home. We don't want you outside. Golf is a four-letter word, along with lots of other things that were four-letter words. And so us in New York and Wisconsin and Ohio, a bunch of places just went into lockdown. Uh, And unfortunately, we were sitting here in fairly nice spring weather. So the golfers among us, and I'm sure the superintendents were just pulling their hair out saying, hey, I got good weather. I got pretty decent turf conditions and I got nothing. So basically through March, April, and we opened back up for limited play in May. And let's just use Illinois as an example. It's not representative of the U.S., but in May, they came back and said, okay, you can play in single rider carts with twosomes with 15-minute spacings. Okay, so think about what that looks like on the golf course. What it looks like is not many people and essentially a quarter of the rounds you can normally do. I mean, you're down like 75% to operate legally. It's like opening a Walmart and saying, yeah, but you can't buy 75% of this stuff. It's just here for looks. You really can't buy it. Exactly. And then to add insult to injury, no F&B, no pro shop. So you're absolutely right. I mean, the funny story is I was out riding my bike in April and I, one of my routes is I go around the golf course, the Buffalo Grove Municipal Golf Course. 
and I'm riding. It's like, I can't see a soul out there. So I get done with my ride and I say, I'm going to call up and, and get a tea time. And the, the gal on the other end of the phone says, the only time I have is seven o'clock. I said, I just rode my bike around your golf course. She said, Jim, that's what this looks like. Watching the golf course from the perimeter, she said, we're completely booked under the restrictions. And you're right. You could ride your bike around the golf course on the outside and not see a person on the golf course. So the interesting thing that happened for our end, Jim, is that while that transition was happening and we were figuring it out, eventually we had the other problem which is they came out on moss and even in places like the desert and in the South of Florida, where the snowbirds go back, they didn't go back this year. Even in places like that, they had quite a bit more golf than they're used to. And, and what well, the other thing that was on our side, it appeared, except for maybe the Southeast Carolinas weather was on our side. It doesn't look like based on your reports that, you know, weather was about 2% of the 14% increase uh, that we saw in round. So that's a good sign that it wasn't weather driven. People actually came out. Can you talk about how that worked across the country? Yeah. So the interesting thing there, and we haven't parsed through it yet because we don't have the consumer survey. The question that it begged was, you're right. So there was lots of golf being played after the restrictions were lifted. And in some places it didn't really tail off that much because the restrictions were not that draconian as they were up here. So now the game became, it is one of the few acceptable recreational pursuits. So now you take this general population who's been going to baseball games, who's been going to music concerts, who's been going out to dinner, going to theaters, and you now say golf is one of the few things you can do. And so to your point, if you're a superintendent, it's like, oh, crap. You know, you've now directed like a missile all these people to my golf course. So the question that we were asking was, who were those golfers? Were those our core golfers who were like, okay, I, I'm just going to go out and play as much golf as I possibly can because A, I'm working from home, so I have a little bit more flexibility in my schedule. B, it's one of the few things I can do. And C, you know, it's something I could take my family out and do. Or is it lapsed golfers, people who have tried the game before and left it, but now it's an acceptable thing and they know how to do it. Or column C is, is it new golfers? Never picked up a club, but crap, I can't do anything else, so... <laughs> I'm going to go try this thing and whack it around and play. So we don't have the consumer survey yet. I have two data points. One is we track through our client courses the number of new customers and new being defined as here's a person who showed up to play. They give you their email address. We look at your last year database and they're not in your last year database. So that doesn't necessarily mean they're a new golfer because they could have simply been somebody else's customer. But you look at those numbers and on average, the average course that's a client of ours, they had between 5,000 and 5,500 new email addresses in their database in 2020 that weren't there in 19. So if I just play with that for a second and say, okay, let's just say that half of them were new golfers and there's 9,000 courses. So that's 22, 2,700. So I'm looking at I'm going, gee, you know, we had to have picked up between two and four million new triers of the game in 20. So we're waiting for the consumer survey. It fields in January and it asks people, did you play last year? We'll get that in April of this year. So it's coming up pretty soon. But I'm thinking we're going to see a net up of like three or four million golfers. Okay. So that stops the bleeding a little bit. The question then is, I think, what you call the snapback when we start to return. Now, we talked about this a year ago when you, Jim, and I did that first <laughs> podcast after the fact that, you know, with nothing else to do, maybe people will just start showing up. We figured out that it actually works. Golf, I think you're right. When I visited Arizona in the pandemic, they didn't stop for a minute. They might yeah. have spaced them out a little bit, but the demand was there. They were going like crazy. I'm wondering what, you know, do you need that consumer data to make a reasonable guess about, let's start with when you think it'll start to happen. You think we'll get this year out of this post-COVID recovery and maybe save some facilities that might go under because you get it for another year? What do you think? Yeah. So, and, and obviously, you know, you've read most of the stuff that we've been publishing along the way saying, here's what we think is going to happen. Stuart and I have this side bet, uh, Scott Merchant at uh, Club Profits in on the game too. They're both betting that they think we can do another 493 million rounds in 21. So basically hold all of 20. I'm saying if we held half of it, so we were 433 going in, we were 493 last year. 
So I'm basically saying, you know, if that's 60, if you get 30 of that back, and actually the latest thing that I just published in the OTR was calling 472, I think. So I'm basically saying if we could manage to hang on to half of that, we will have done well. And that will be a two-year annual growth rate, which is a lot of, I, I do work, as you know, in consumer packaged goods. A lot of the Nestle, Mondelez, Coke, Pepsi, what they're doing in their financial reports is they're doing what they call two-year stack comps. So they're basically saying, we're not going to comp last year. We're going to take the two-year period, annualize it. So if we got to 470-something, that would be a two-year annualized growth of about 5% for the industry. That would be that would be victory with a big V in my mind. Well, let's get to the point here, too, for an industry that usually celebrates how they lose less than the previous year. I mean, don't let me let's not miss the lead here, Jim. You know, we celebrate the fact that we, you know, we still closed 150 golf courses. And what'd you say? They were uh, 150, 120 short of what they normally were doing or yep, over 200. Yep. So where are we at? Because this is also something that's going to affect how we stabilize again. Because, you know, you were predicting for a long time this absorption, these closures. They're funny. You write them up at the end of the publication. For anybody that doesn't read or doesn't get Jim's magazine, let me commend, just read the back page. You should put that on Twitter. It's so funny the way you annotate it and comment on the little social commentary you put in there. It's really great because superintendents are going to be affected by what gets closed up. But also, hey, they close up. That means we're healthier. I can get my new irrigation system. I can get my GPS sprayer. I can get my you know new heads if I need them, depending on what you're looking for. What does that look like moving forward? We're going to have more healthy facilities or is it just going to take longer for us to lose them? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, for those who haven't followed our work, we basically were about 15% oversupplied when we did our 2019 state of the industry. And we were working off that supply, as you referenced, Frank, at about a percent a year. So we were basically saying we got 15 years, folks, at this current pace to get back to equilibrium when, to your point, the healthy courses can survive without cutthroat competition. The superintendents aren't going to have to keep taking 5% out of their budget every year you know, and making do. So we looked at that. So the good thing about 20 was, I mean, if you think about it, if you're 15% underwater and actually the public courses were only up 12%. So everybody quotes the, the 15%, you know, of golf data tech, but what they don't realize is that's 19% up for the privates and 12% up for the publics. But just if you threw a blanket over it, basically in one year at a national level, we got back to equilibrium. So to your point, there's good and bad to that. One is the people who are on the bubble, it keeps them in business. So that's good for them. And I, I won't wish ill on anybody in the industry. But the bad thing is we need that pruning to happen because I don't think we'll sustain that level. So again, if we go back to 474, it puts us back in the hole by about 5 or 6%. So if the snapback in 21 is we go back to 474 and we continue to close courses at the current rate, it simply says what COVID helped us do was knock 10 years off the absorption period. Now, the interesting way to end this, Jim, is to talk about the thriving markets versus the markets that struggle, right? You do a good job in most of the issues of talking about a particular market and how we started the year so far. Let's start with that. How have we started the year so far? And are you still worried about particular markets that you might want to use your cognologic weather predictions to sort of say how to get the most out of this year. So I want you to answer it two ways. How did we start out this year and try to use your logic and talk about your product for the weather forecasting moving forward? Yeah, and that's a perfect segue because what you're talking about in markets, one of the things that happened in 20 was the only visibility we really had in 20 is the Gulf Data Tech Rounds Report. And Tom and those guys have been, you know, struggling valiantly for years, you know, trying to give us visibility into that. And what happened was in May, they stopped reporting markets. So I, I'm guessing, you know, the participation, some sampling, some other things, and all things COVID. So we basically lost visibility. So I don't really have a lot of visibility, nor does the industry, as to which markets suffered more greatly or not and how we're doing in this beginning. So a great segue, Frank, is we launched recently the Gulf Market Research Center. And basically what the Gulf Market Research Center is, is we're building a new cooperative for people to submit through a web portal their rounds and revenue. And what they'll get in exchange is we've built four reports in there. 
And so the exchange is you put your rounds and revenue in and immediately we will convert that into a scorecard, a trend report, et cetera. So the benefit for the industry, so for the individual operator or superintendent, the benefit is you get to see your metrics through this scorecard, through this web portal immediately. The benefit for the industry is as we get enough facilities by market and as we get enough markets to participate, we'll be able to create that seven-dimensional scorecard, golf revenue, rounds, utilization, rev par, achieved rate, percent of effective greens fee, and to be able to report on the health of markets. You know, these are incredibly healthy. These are not very healthy. We'll be in a much better position. Our goal is to get 500 courses signed up by end of June and 1,000 by end of year. So we would be in a much better position for you and I to have that conversation at the end of June. If I can get 500 courses in at the end of December, we can have a really intelligent conversation if I can get 1,000 courses participating. I'm going to get you out of here on this, Jim, because one of the things that the pandemic exposed and everybody's bracing themselves for is we got very much accustomed to not a lot of golf. We have facilities that probably could have taken more golf based on the way they're designed and you can put people through it and the penality of it, right? Oh, the design and the traffic, but it certainly exposed uh, infrastructure problems for superintendents. And I wonder what you might suggest are some key indicators, right? Performance indicators that a superintendent should be aware of so that when they go to people to say, hey, you know, I got to fix this part of the irrigation system. You got to put some drainage or give me some car pads over here because it's killing me. I'm spending so much time or, boy, I really could use to do these bunkers because they're sucking labor hours out of me. What are some of the key performance indicators that you tell a superintendent, hey, make sure you know these at your facility, knowing also that everybody's food and beverage is down? Right. If you relied on food and beverage, you simply that revenue and the expenses, mind you, also went away. So I'll leave that for a different time. What are some key performance indicators for superintendents to be aware of? Now, the two that I would key in on, uh, one is capacity rounds. So that's basically telling us, you know, what weather is giving us to work with. If I were a superintendent and the forecast is for my capacity rounds to be up eight to nine percent, I would say, hey, Weather is going to give us the conditions to have a lot of traffic on this golf course. My systems are already antiquated. If this comes true, and we know history has shown that demand follows weather in this industry, you know, I'm going to be behind the eight ball come August, September. So that's one. And then the, the kissing cousin to that is utilization, which is, you know, that tends to induce more golf. So you can say, gee, if the capacity rounds go up and my utilization stays at 55%, we can expect this many walks across the grass this year. And I don't have the infrastructure to support, you know, 43,000 walks across the grass this year. And that brings up, uh, there's another new product that we introduced to be part of GMRC. Uh, it's called Foresight. And in the past, we've done weather impact for history. Right. And what Foresight is now doing is we're taking our weather rules and our weather partner, uh, AccuWeather, and we're basically forecasting 60 days out. And so we can now produce a graph that says, here's what we think capacity rounds will be based on the weather forecast and our golf rules for the next 60 days, which I think would be incredibly helpful for a superintendent. 100%, 100%, Jim. Listen, it's always a joy having you. Great seeing you. Thanks for taking the time. And I look forward to chatting with you Q2 and get some answers. And in the meantime, I'll keep enjoying the back pages of Outside the Ropes. That sounds great. Thanks for spreading the word. Anytime. Good to have you. Take care, Jim. Big thanks to Jim Copenhaver from Palooza Golf and to John Nealon from Sport Eng, based in Australia. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryjack, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass, and the Plant Food Company, providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability for 40 years. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca by Nate Richards. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger, graphic design, Nicole Rossi, theme music, Tucker Rossi, and executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining us.